Welcome everyone to Ask Narcan. I'm your host, Joel Hool, and this is our podcast series where we sit down with our experts to talk about the work that we do here at Natural Resources Canada, or NRCAN for short. Today, we'll be talking about unique reefs that were discovered off the British Columbia coast in the 1980s. For those of you who are new to the show, we call the series Ask Narcan because we want to hear from you, but also what interests you in the world around us. The purpose of the show is to share with you not only the type of science that we do, but also the reasons why we do it and how it relates to your life. So, at the end of the episode, if you have any questions on today's topic or any of NRCAN's science, head to Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag AskNRCAN. Our experts will do their best to answer all your questions. We release an episode of Ask NRCAN on the first Tuesday of each month, so make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Okay, let's meet our guest. My guest today is scientist Kim Conway from the Pacific Geoscience Center in Sydney, BC. Kim, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. Perfect. So in the 1980s, you were part of an expedition to map the continental shelf in the Pacific Ocean. And during this mission, you made a fascinating, unexpected discovery. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, sure. The uh, the discovery in the 80s was actually on several expeditions. We had a large marine program to map our continental shelf area, which is the shallow part of the uh, the ocean adjacent to the uh, continents. Um, so in BC, that's uh, Queen Charlotte Sound and Hecate Strait by the Queen Charlotte Islands, or Haida Gwaii pardon me, and north of Vancouver Island. So we had uh, several expeditions to these waters and uh, made these uh, uh, interesting, uh, amazing observations on seafloor features that took a long time to actually figure out. It was a couple of years before we actually figured out that these features were all related and all were actually reefs formed by sponges on the seabed. Um, so these reefs were uh, very large, but in different forms in different places. So where you went on the continental shelf, these uh, reefs uh, were different structures, different styles, mounds, ridges, uh, flat areas, but all created by the same uh, group of sponges. So what exactly are glass sponge reefs and what makes them so special? The glass sponges are, are, as the name implies, they have a, a skeleton made of glass. So that's uh, silicon dioxide, just like a window glass, but this is a biologically created glass. So people are familiar with uh, sponges that they use in the bath. These, uh, these sponges are, are protein-based uh, sponges. They have a protein skeleton. So the sponges that live in the deep sea often have a glass skeleton. And these are the group of sponges that form these large reefs. So they're very fragile. Uh, they take a very long time to grow, uh, a few centimeters per year. And the neat thing about these reefs is they grow like a coral reef, one sponge on the other, until they can form these fantastically large uh, structures up to 30 meters in height and uh, uh, tens of kilometers in area. So they're basically the size of cities. If the city had eight-story buildings uh, and widespread uh, low-rise apartment buildings all around it, uh, that's the size of these uh, what we call sponge reef complexes. Um, so these uh, reef areas took, uh, we think, thousands of years to grow. Uh, the, the construction of the reefs is dependent on many factors, and they're unique to this part of the world. We, they, we don't find them anywhere else in the world, and uh, we think that their growth is dependent on our high, high uh, nutrient levels, including silica as a nutrient in the water, uh, that's delivered from our mountain ranges. So the wa rivers wash this silica into the ocean where these sponge reefs can take advantage of this high silica content in the ocean water and build these these really large reef structures. So how big are the reefs themselves? 
the uh, the reefs, uh, as you see them on the seafloor in Hackett Strait and Queen Charlotte Sound, are often 20 meters or even taller, uh, in, and they can form pointy mounds or ridges. And um, other places, they can be very broad hill-like forms that go on for kilometers. So when we map these structures, uh, they end up, as I mentioned, being much like a city where you have different size structures in different parts of the reef complex. And we think this is because there's variability in the delivery of uh, currents that bring the nutrients, but also suspended sediment to the reefs to make the, the reefs grow faster or slower, depending on the, the condition at the seafloor where the, where the sponges are growing. So this discovery, what does it mean for science? Um, well, I think the biggest thing is it was such a, a surprise to the marine biology scientific community in Canada and, and indeed around the world that it was kind of a new paradigm that an actual living reef system could exist in deep and cold water off British Columbia. Uh, so this this was a brand new concept that we had these complex, very complex ecosystems uh, widespread uh, in deep water on our on our shelf. So this understanding. Uh, required changes to fisheries management. Um, so now, uh, in the past, fisheries management was based on a single species, a single harvest, and without uh, without too much consideration about the other players in the ecosystem. So now, fisheries management has moved to ecosystem-based management, and this is required if these reefs are to survive. So longer-term thinking about the habitat requirements for different species, that's an important part of the science around these reefs. Uh, the reefs take centuries to grow, and these these reefs provide habitat for many species, just like a coral reef does in shallow water. Uh, and so all these fa- fascinating connections between different uh, species uh, are part of the, uh, part of the, the, I guess, the importance to science is all these connections that organisms have on the reef are brand new uh, and are just being sorted out. The other really interesting connection is the, uh, the way that these reefs are the only living examples of a reef that was once very common in the world. If we look in the geologic past and the Mesozoic, uh, that's the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods, the age of dinosaurs. These kinds of reefs were widespread around the world. They were the most common kind of reef in those days. Um, so these reefs can be found as fossilized reefs uh, over much of southern Europe all the way and even into Iran and uh, areas like, like this. Uh, and um, so this example we have, we can compare directly to the ancient reefs from the past and see what the conditions were uh, that these reefs grew under. That's absolutely incredible. Um, the reef is obviously very special. It's a marine protected area and a request was made to declare it a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So why is it so important to protect and conserve the reef? The the UNESCO aspect is really interesting because many you you could view these reefs as a cultural cultural heritage or a geologic biologic heritage of the world because the ancient reefs spread across many many countries. Uh, you can find this style of reef. Uh, I myself have visited these rock record reefs in Spain, Portugal, and Germany, but they occur in Romania, in Poland. Uh, and Iran and China and other places. And so these reefs we have off our coast are much, are, are really are a heritage for the entire world, not just British Columbia and not just Canada. So that's why I think they have been recommended as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Are we at all worried about climate change having an impact on the reefs? Um, 
the yes, the uh, ocean is experiencing climate change effects uh, the same way that uh, the whole the whole entire globe is. Uh, the effects that we think could impact the sponge reefs are are twofold. And the first is that the water itself is actually warming, and uh, these sponges are, are uh, do much better in colder waters as opposed to warmer waters. So where the reefs are shallow in, in places near Vancouver, like Howe Sound, they've actually found very small reefs that you can dive on uh, to scuba depths in 25 meters of water. And these, this water depth will be impacted by surface water warming which is already beginning in some places. So these sponges seem to be happiest in about uh, six to nine degree water. If the water temperatures climb much over 10 degrees, they start to uh, have, have problems with metabolism and, and other biological effects of that warm water. Uh, the other aspect that, uh, that climate change may, may bring to our, our reef systems is that the upwelling systems that is driven by winds off our, off our north coast uh, the winds will uh, increase and increase the upwelling as well. So this upwelling that occurs on our, our continental shelf uh, further south, this upwelling is, is, a, is a real benefit to the ecosystem because it brings nutrient-rich water to places like California. But off our coast, unfortunately, the water that's down below that is upwelled is low in, in oxygen. And so this water that's less oxygen rich will be upwelled onto the continental shelf where these large reef complexes are. Uh, um, so that is a concern. However, we think that these glass sponges are more resilient in the face of variable oxygen conditions than are, for example, fish. So fish are very sensitive to uh, low oxygen, whereas we think the sponges are not quite as uh, susceptible to this this impact. But uh, it is a concern, and we uh, DFO and uh, university researchers are actively pursuing that research. Um, speaking of research, are we still studying the reef today? Is there any more scientific research planned for the near future? Oh yes, the uh, uh, Department of Fisheries Oceans has has ongoing work uh, detailing the reef ecology and what groups of animals are found on the reefs and the relationships between these reef dwellers. It's, uh, it's very fascinating to see this, this uh, detailed biology work uh, uh, come to light, uh, especially as we've been involved in, in mapping these reefs for well over 30 years now. It's really amazing to see the progress in very detailed ecosystem connections that the, the biologists are making on the reefs and illuminating those really interesting connections that uh, I think everybody finds fascinating on the coral or things like cleaner, cleaner shrimp and these really interesting uh, ecological phenomena. These are actually also occurring on our deep water reefs, and we're just starting to understand uh, these ecosystem connections. Um, so the emphasis also is on the ecosystem-based management and marine protected area strategy that, that we have uh, just developed with in Canada, uh, and DFO is leading that. And so they're assessing how well the marine protected areas are working to conserve the reefs. Uh, and um, that's important work because they can modify the marine protected area if they, if, they, if they detect impacts that are further field effects from some other industrial process, for example, or um, le uh, learn more about how the MPA is actually conserving the reefs uh, and how efficacious those areas are in, in that conservation uh, effort. And the um, final thing I'd like to say uh, is the work we're doing is working on reef variations and reef form and growth rates uh, because, as I mentioned initially, they have this amazing variety of geomorphic forms, so they can form very steep hills or very widespread uh, flat-lying reef meadows, we would call them. They can be 10 meters thick but not very undulatory. They can 
form a deposit that's very flat but will go on for perhaps five kilometers in any given direction of, of continuous sponge. So we want to know what the physical drivers for this variability are, and that's that's a really interesting uh, physical connection of the oceanography and the, uh, the geology uh, with the biology to make these reef forms develop. If our listeners want to learn more about the glass sponge reef, um, how can they obtain more information? That is uh, very accessible now. There's there's uh, many good websites, including uh, DFO has uh, descriptions of the reef uh, protection measures they've recently engaged. Uh, and if you just Google uh, glass sponge reefs DFO or glass sponge reefs BC, um, you will find uh, many uh, points of information and uh, publications that uh, that we have out there. So simply using Google and uh, Googling glass sponge reefs or DFO sponge reefs will will bring the, uh, the interested party to lots of information. Your work is really interesting. Thank you so much, Kim, for your time. Thank you, Joel. So this is the end of the episode. But like always, it doesn't mean it's the end of our conversation. If you have any follow-up questions for our experts, get on Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag AskNRCan. Also, if you're interested in learning more about the scientific work that we do at Natural Resources Canada, check out our online magazine called Simply Science. We have a ton of great content for you, including articles, videos, and previous episodes of this podcast. If you check out the podcast page for this episode, we'll have links available to any relevant material so you can learn more about what we talked about today. The best way to find Simply Science is either to Google it or click on the banner from our website at nrcan.gc.ca. And if you like this episode and you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, please leave a review and subscribe so you can check out any previous or future episodes. That's it for us today. Thank you for listening. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you next time.